everyone, and welcome back to Big Data Talks, in which we have conversations with industry experts about the way in which big data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence are changing the way we live. My name is Jan-Willem Middelberg, and I will be your host again for this platform and podcast series. Today, I have the extreme pleasure to welcome Professor Dr. Angela Lee. Dr. Angela is the Associate Dean and Head of Department of Computing and Information Systems in the School of Engineering and Technology at Sunway University in Malaysia. She serves on the Editorial and Reviewer Board for several international journals, such as the Journal of IT and Industry, Journal of Information and Knowledge Management Systems, Journal of Information and Management Systems, and she is involved in several committees and memberships on big data technical committees. She's a fellow of the Higher Education Academy in the UK, representing Malaysia in the International Federation for Information Processing. Dr. Angela holds degrees in business information technology, a master of science in e-commerce, a postgraduate certificate in academic practice, and a PhD in computing. So you can imagine why I'm super excited to have her here with me as a guest today. Welcome, Dr. Angela, to Big Data Talks. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you, William. Thank you, Jen. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to this very exciting uh, talk event. I'm really excited about it and waiting to, to, to start on this conversation with you. Absolutely. So one of the first questions I always have is, where does your fascination for technology come from? What is the, the reason that you started to enter in this field in the first place? Hmm. Actually, when I started off entering this computing field, I know nothing about computer at all. all right? um, back then was many, many years ago uh, where computer electronics just started and, and everyone talking about you know, the, the changes between paper, you know, paperless, the moving between paper to uh, electronic system. There was the time where computer systems started to So I picked the most popular course during that time to study, not knowing what to do. All right. So I stumbled across and I beginning to like it. And then I move on to having my master's in uh, e-commerce, also master of computer science in e-commerce, majoring in e-commerce. And after that, I move on to obtaining my PhD in computing. So all along, I started as um, learning the, the computer system, how it is useful for companies, how companies can actually leverage computer systems. But after a while, you see that what is the next big thing you see? What can a computer, what can a company do with all the data? What is the future like? Yeah. So that's the question, you know, uh, am I producing the right graduate students out? Are they out there doing the right thing? You know, because that was after the bloom of computer science, the bloom of the computer systems, um, electronic uh, devices. So we, we tend to like look at what's next. Yeah. So, so, so how do you determine that? Because um, especially in the, the field of education, you're always looking to make sure that your students are industry ready. You would like to make sure that they have the best proper 
education that you can get in order to get them into industry. So how do you keep up with the latest in the very fast-moving uh, world of computer science? How do I keep up? Um, by joining trainings, all right? For an educator to keep up with the ever-changing technologies, we must consistently upgrade ourselves, consistently be on par to know what is happening in the industry. We have to work very closely with the industry partners to get what they request from us. And then we provide the best for our students and to make sure that the students actually have the right skills to work out there. Because me, myself, when I was a computing student, when I come out to work, the things that I've studied is very different from, you know, what am I going to practice? Yeah. Yes. So I experience it myself and I do not want my students to have that experience. So working closely with industry is very, very important because it kind of like reach up the, the, the gap between what the industry wants and what kind of graduates that we are producing to the industry. Yeah, I can imagine that. So um, speaking about these technologies, what are some of the most notable developments that you're seeing today and that should be incorporated in the course curricula of the future? Course curricula in the future. Okay, actually, there's many things that going around in computing field. They are quantum computing, they are artificial intelligence, in the market, you know, machine learning. These are all very important uh, key elements that we can actually embed it into our computing syllabus. It can actually boost up the value of the curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that this is probably one of the reasons why students select the program in the, in the first place is because of, it's so much focused around new technology. So besides the teaching, you're obviously involved in a lot of research. What are, what are some of the, the notable projects and some of the, I would say, papers that you're working on right now? Right now, I'm working on uh, pandemic issues, looking at healthcare data, and I'm trying to look at the data privacy that we gather from healthcare institutions, and we would like to predict the pandemic area and also try to safeguard those data with blockchain technology. So it's a merge between machine learning and blockchain technologies together. And any uh, insights that you can already share from that research? Not at the moment yet because it just started. So mm -hmm. we have not exposed this out yet. I just gotten the, the, the letter yesterday. So yeah. So we are working on that in coming future. Nice. I, well, I look forward to hearing more about that when, uh, when the paper is published. We might have to do a second yeah. uh, uh, interview. <laughs> yes. The, the previous type of research that I have worked with is more on the predictive analytics, on consumer behavior, looking at uh, companies, how to increase their sales data, and also help them to understand better uh, the consumer uh, demands and needs in the social media world. Yeah, so there's a whole lot of data that um, you probably need and utilize for these kinds of research. How do you, as an academic institution, validate what kind of uh, data is relevant for these kinds of research papers? I don't quite understand. 
Can you um, explain why, if you are doing the research for these kinds of papers, how do you arrive at the data sets that you need in order to answer these questions? Normally, we will work with the industry okay. to gather the data because we can actually use data sets from um, Kago, you know, or data banks. But we will prefer to have real sets of data sets, real world kind of data sets from the industry. So when we work with the industry, we need to sign some NDA documents in order okay. to protect the data, and it will not be able to release out from the researcher uh, hands. So it will sit in the uh, company, and we will draw the data out, and we will analyze it from there. Very interesting. So I'm quite sure that today there's going to be a lot of people listening and um, um, viewing and who are considering to go to university or that are looking at graduate programs. So can you explain a little bit around uh, the faculty that you've built uh, Sunway University and what is it that you uh, are trying to achieve with your programs? A little bit of a um, background around Sunway. Yeah. Okay, so we started off the um, degree in data analytics since 2016, and we are the first university that offer an undergraduate full-fledged analytics program at Malaysia. And since then, we received lots of students uh, coming into the program itself. Until today, the program has grown a lot. And we move on to creating a master's in data science. Of course, we have PhD in computing, whereby the Master of Data Science students would then articulate to continue their studies in their PhD. So we have been a pioneer in these industries. We have been listed as the most prominent data science in the world, one of the most prominent institutes uh, in the data science field. Upcoming, we will be listed as the most recommended data science institute. So in Sunway University, we have three schools that is offering data science program. One of it is from the School of Science, uh, School of Engineering and Technology, and another one is from the School of Business, and another one is from coming from the School of Mathematics. So a, a lot of students who are thinking of, of entering a career in data science are always quite anxious around the programming part, the technology part. What would you recommend to those kinds of students um, whether data science is something that would be of interest to them? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do receive lots of students you know, coming to tell me that, Miss, I don't really like programming, but I want to be a data science. You know, what can I do? And I'm weak in maths, but I want to be a data scientist. So what I can say that it's very, very different from the conventional programming. When it comes to big data, the structure of the programs and also the programming part is very different from the convention style of uh, programming languages. So it is easy to write, easy to create, and easy to understand. So it shouldn't be any problem for students that are interested in this field and yeah. are afraid to code. You know? yeah, well, I, I fully agree with you there. I remember that when I went to school, it was still... C and C++ and system calls and all yes. the, the arcane programming languages. And nowadays, if you're busy in the, the more Python or R, it's, 
it's a world of difference and yes. it's much more straightforward and um, not as complex and I would say basic as a lot of the, uh, the programming that we used to learn. So I think from that point of view, the world of data science has become quite uh, evil. Yeah, and we can tell, you know, how old are you based on the languages that you learn. And you <laughs> So I'm not going to tell you my first programming language. <laughs> no, I could have said that that would be some, something in the Fortran library. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> I can imagine. So, so um, how do you, um, because obviously the, the, the programs that you are teaching are kind of guiding people to become the next data analyst, data scientists, or even into the engineering space uh, within larger companies. How do you prepare students for that transition towards industry? Because um, I remember that when I went to school, it was all a lot of theory um, and it was all around fictional cases. But then when I went to the, the corporate world, it was so different from anything that I've ever learned in school. How, how do you try to uh, facilitate or ease that transition? Now, I experienced the same thing as you do. So to ease off the transitions between uh, the students uh, going through the workforce would be, we consistently have uh, career counseling. Mm -hmm. We do offer them uh, internship as well so that they know what's happening in the real world. Now, the most important thing is that when we teach, we want to teach the students with real case data. Like fictional data, you still can use it, but it's for your explanations. But in the way that we cultivate the culture, the teaching pedagogy, you know, uh, in the syllabus, we would want students to play on the real data. That's why we work very closely with industry. And there's a lot of partnership with companies because they will provide us the data and allow our students to explore and, yeah. and brave enough to explore it and learn as much as they can. Because this will actually close up and prepare them for the, the workforce. Learning from the theory, learning from the book is very much different from you doing the real data, you looking at the real set of data because the real set of data will give you the real problem. Absolutely. And um, I fully second that because if you work on something that is actually being used in any kind of company, it makes it so much more tangible and also going to help you with encountering problems that you see in the real world. I, I wish that was there when I was young, um, but uh, we, we did not have that amount of uh, industry data sets at that stage yet. Mm. Yes, we learn everything from the book and yeah. then we try to imagine what's going to happen, but we don't see the real thing until we you know, work on it. So therefore, now we are very fortunate. We do not want to have this kind of experience given to our students, you know, for our younger generations. We want them to feel the closure, you know, between the, uh, the things that they learn in the university and also the industry needs. That's why we will consistently have guest lecture. We also invited your good self over to give the guest lecture to our students and our students enjoy it so much. You know, they, they get to learn from you. Yeah, no, I loved uh, giving uh, guest lectures. It's always a, um, a moment to connect with the next generation and especially people who are 
completely uh, new to the field and, and don't have all that baggage from a corporate experience yet. So from that point of view, I always like doing that. Uh, so that's uh, absolutely was a great pleasure to uh, provide that over at Sunway. So one of the, the uh, key things that we're always trying to dive into with this podcast, and a lot of our listeners are kind of beyond the basics. Um, and so therefore, I always try to go a little bit deeper into the analytics and data, data domain. And one of the main next topics that I wanted to discuss with you a little bit more detail is around the technologies and specifically the algorithms that are behind things like sentiment analysis, opinion mining, marketing, because those are kind of the key things that are part of the curriculum that you're also providing. So let me start with um, um, a basic uh, um, question for everyone who's listening and has no idea what we talk about when we, we are uh, having a discussion around sentiment analysis and opinion mining. Could you, in a, in a nutshell, explain uh, what that is? Okay. Sentiment analysis, because when we talk about predictions, predictive analytics, there are two types of data, you know. One is, of course, data that relates very much to the structured data, which is uh, numbers, and another one is on unstructured data. The methods and also the algorithm to mine these two data is very different. We have different kind of technologies, different kind of algorithms behind it to mine out the result and also the outcome of it. So for sentiment analysis, it falls under the unstructured data. So we look at the text, textual uh, sentiment analysis of it. We look at the text, we look at the post, we look at the images, we look at the, the, the sound of it to mine out the outcome of the hidden patterns, right? So these are the things that we look at. And the algorithms that looking at it allows us to segment the data and bring out the emotions value through the analysis. So through sentiment analysis, you get to know the opinion mining of somebody, you know, you get to know uh, the product, whether it's selling good or not selling good, not sellable. You get to know whether um, your customers are happy with your product. Uh, they, because you see nowadays, customers, when they're not happy with your service or your product, they would not come in front of you and tell you, hey, I'm not happy, but they bend it all out on the internet and social media. Mm-hmm. So one of the best way to to gather all this information is by crawling the data and then do a sentiment analysis to find out whether they're happy or they are not happy with the product. Yeah, so, so I read a lot of articles and, and libraries around sentiment analysis, and especially in the last few years, we've seen that the accuracy and especially the, the level of confidence and that we can make predictions based on sentiment analysis is becoming increasingly more, I would say, reliable. Is, is that something you share? Yes. Tuesday, when we started off with uh, analyzing uh, textual data, it is quite difficult because of the dictionaries. The lexicons are, are not so uh, proper yet at the time, unable to rectify some of the terms, the features, but now it is more better because mm-hmm. of the 
the, the built-in uh, dictionaries that they have, uh, more and more people that has already contributed in this field of research. Therefore, it is easier to do this uh, sentiment analysis now. It's yeah. becoming more accurate in matching the terms and also to find out the relationship between each terms. And, and do you then use, uh, with the courses that are provided at Sunway, do you use uh, kind of the pre-programmed libraries and that uh, will help students to get started or is it learning it from scratch? Uh, we teach them both. One is learning from scratch and also we have some subjects that uh, learn from the pre-libraries. Yeah. Very interesting. So, um, in one of the, the previous guests that I had on the show, they, uh, they talked about um, the way in which systems can now also, also the, uh, start identifying a sentiment within voice. So, in other words, if you have somebody on the phone, are they happy, are they uh, angry, uh, and especially within the customer service domain, that can help because it could automatically reroute you to a person that is... Um, skilled or uh, trained in dealing with specific emotions. Is sentiment analysis, when we look at textual data, is that similar to the techniques that we use for audio or maybe even video, or is that a completely different approach? When you look at sentiment analysis, because it, it goes back to the text analysis, you know, mm -hmm. the text analysis. So when you look at the audio and the video, you probably would then deal with deep learning a little bit because it, it, the algorithm would be different to extract the information and also the data from the video and also from the audio. So you can either extract the audio and then translate it into textual mm -hmm. and then from there you do a sentiment analysis. Yeah. So, so one of the, the things that I personally find very fascinating is now also that there's a lot of possibilities to look at facial expressions and from that facial expression have the opportunity to um, see whether people are saying the right thing or whether they are lying or whether they are exaggerating things. And from a lot of the, the, the research, it shows that through facial expressions and especially micro expressions, we are moving towards a world where computers can detect and sometimes even predict emotions based on what people are seeing. So very famous example that we've been seeing is in the, in the poker domain in which people sometimes um, bluff and sometimes they uh, are obviously true. And apparently to a certain degree, this can be resolved through facial expressions. If Do you think we're ever going to see um, the day that a computer based on this kind of machine learning and AI is going to be able to predict or win from customers? Yes. Yeah. I think in the future, definitely, uh, we are definitely moving towards that because uh, reading on uh, facial expressions, you know, is one of the next big thing that uh, the computing were uh, actually moving towards. Yeah. So that, that always also brings me towards one of the, the more contentious topics is, of course, there's a lot of discussion these days around 
the extent to which governments can use facial expressions also for surveillance or monitoring. And it brings us towards that eternal domain of artificial intelligence, ethics, um, and how do you deal with these new technologies in a very much more responsible way? Um, and I always wonder, is that something that should be taught at universities right from the start? And if so, how do you deal with data ethics with your students? Yes. Data ethics is one of the very important aspects that we always uh, inject to our syllabus and we want our students to know this as well because the data that we gather is important to not expose it in the sense that because some of the data are quite private. Mm -hmm. it, it, it deals with uh, the customers' uh, information or even uh, companies' information. So it's quite PNC. Hence, data ethics is something that we we have in the syllabus and also we want our students to know what they can do and how to protect their customers' value. Yeah. Is there a specific um, framework or guideline that you're using? Because um, if you look around the world, there's different ways in which com uh, countries deal with data ethics. There's different ways in which companies deal with data ethics. Uh, what's allowed in one organization might be completely um, not allowed in another. How do you find that balance? Because ultimately, ethics is also a bit subjective. To be honest, at this moment of time, we do not build any uh, framework yet on this. We have one subject on data ethics mm -hmm. under the of data science uh, program. For the undergraduate students, we have the data ethics subjects embedded in all our analytic subjects. We have about 13 analytics subjects in our undergraduate's uh, degree. So during the whole entire course, we will cultivate this knowledge to the students and make sure that they know the importances of data ethics and to prevent it from exposing or, you know, uh, for the companies to secure or feel that they are secure with us, we normally, what we do is we will sign the NDA. So the document will be signed between the company and also the students itself and the subject lecturer. So, so do you think there should be more, I would say, industry regulation around that? Because um, it's still very much a greenfield. There's no... Yes. universal truth around this. Is this something that government should be looking into? Yes, government should be looking into it. But you see, because big data are, are becoming very, very important in the industry and also growth of the economy, by protecting certain data, we, we will be having a little problem in obtaining the data so that we need it for our analysis. So in a sense that so much that they wanted to protect the data, at the same time, they also want to release some of the data out so that people can actually work on it to come up with the, the uh, outcome of it. So they should have like a governance or probably a 
a department to look into what are the data that can be released out public for us to analyze it and what are the data that they should mask off. So sometimes when we work with um, industry, they, all, they are very concerned. Like you say that there's no, um, because this area is still very green, mm-hmm. there are no black or white kind of uh, thing to determine you know, what can be released, what you cannot. So normally the company would mask off the sensitive data which they think that it is sensitive. Yeah. And they can even jumble up the data and, and give it to us and you know, let us do the analysis. Yeah, no, that, that's, and I think that's obviously a, a way in which uh, organizations should be looking at it because otherwise they might be violating their own compliance policies as well. I can only imagine um, that besides Sunway University, um, there's a lot of other universities, not just in Malaysia, but I would say in the region or maybe across the entire world, that are all struggling with the same thing. Um, in some of the previous conversations I had on, on this platform, we talked about the responsibility of um, corporates and sometimes governments to start, kind of start formulating these kinds of regulations. Um, but now that I have somebody who is very embedded in the academic domain, um, should there not be some kind of a cross-university uh, collaboration to define how we're going to educate our next generation of students? when it comes towards these data ethics questions? What's your opinion? Yes, I, I think they should have, you see, because uh, as I said, data ethics is one of the very important elements. Mm-hmm. The younger generation, if they want to embark into the data science field, they first must know this, right? Absolutely, they yeah. Must, yeah, they, they, they first need to know uh, how to protect the data and and uh, why data privacy is so important right? yeah. to yeah. And I think it's becoming more and more important every day. And uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of people who have, a, have an answer to this question at this stage. And that makes it tremendously complex. But at the same time, also, I think a very, very interesting topic. Yeah. Good. Um, I have one other major topic that I wanted to discuss with you, and that is obviously big data. You know, I'm uh, very heavily involved in the domain of big data for the last few years. And um, one of the, the key things that we've been seeing around um, lots of other academic institutions is this uh push towards looking at more massive quantities of data instead of just a more regular analysis and analytics part. And if you look at the new developments with uh, the open AI language models and big uh, machine learning uh, parts, which look at photographs or audio, there's one common denominator and that's you need massive uh, quantities of data in order to come up with correct uh, uh, models. And also it requires a significant amount of data to make sure that they're any good because the accuracy is only going to be going up if you have more data points. I can only imagine that that is bringing a lot of challenges to universities because in order to train these kind of large models, you need massive computing power. 
you need, um, yeah, that's expensive uh, also to, to kind of put it that way. So I was wondering, how does an organization, how do you with the computer science department deal with this development? Um, and do you set up your own uh, infrastructure? Do you partner with cloud providers? How do you tackle this drive towards big data? Right. So you see, we are very fortunate because our management are very supportive uh, with the development of the program and also the infrastructure um, in the university itself. The Sunday University, they are willing to invest in the high-performance computing. They are willing to invest in the laboratories. Mm -hmm. The labs are all up-to-date and using the latest technologies. We also partner with cloud softwares cloud services because we know that because of the huge amount of uh, data that is gathering, we need to have access to all these technologies. Do you see any um, interesting developments in that analysis of massive data and um, the, the language models that are obviously very popular at the moment that you could leverage in your curriculum? You mean the... Uh, very popular languages. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Okay, I don't think that we are, you know, because we are from the education. We Correct. we use, we try to expose students to as many as possible tools, so that they know. So some of them is proprietary services, you know. Um, some is open source. So we encourage them to use both. Very interesting. So uh, you, you can kind of already guess my next question. Uh, obviously, in the whole education domain, including it for our own organization, and almost every educator I talk to, um, everyone nowadays have to, has to deal with large language models. And um, they are so good these days that they can write entire computing programs. They can also not just give you natural language, but computer code. Um, does it change the way um, you've set up the curriculum in the last six months uh, and to validate testing or cheating, if you want to call it that way? Yeah, because of the new technologies like ChatGPT around, right? right? Yeah. Yes. We do not discourage students from using it because um, it is supposed to be of good use. Hence, we need to educate our students to use it properly and to enhance their knowledge on, on it. So for us as an educator, we, it, there are no difference between um, our, our way of designing the curriculum, even though we have all these new technologies out, but it definitely helps us in uh, preparing um, the syllabus better yeah yeah so you can even help it to write your syllabi these days yeah 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 because at the end of the day you still require you yourself as a subject expert to validate the things that is given from the software correct so we yeah therefore we, we do not discourage students from using it but we want our students to make full use of these technologies in a good use 
yeah? so that they can ultimately uh, embed it in, in the, into the way that they see it as a tool. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, in the world of big data, um, we, we've talked about this before, uh, a lot of people are saying that the next big thing is going to be the quantum computers that are able to analyze everything that we know today in, in a matter of seconds. Um, is this something you're venturing in as well with the curriculum? And if yes, to what extent? At this moment of time, we have uh, developed the Master of Data Science. So one of the subjects is on deep learning. Quantum computing would be the elective subject. Yeah. So we want to expose students uh, in this area as well. We do have a lot of uh, PhDs, postgraduate students are working in this area as well as their research topic. Absolutely. For those of um, um, the people that are listening and that have absolutely no idea what we are talking about in quantum computing, how is it different from uh, the regular computers that we know? Well, quantum computing is faster because due to due to the excessive of the data, you see, the, the excessiveness of the data and also the environment that is happening now, the, the high performance of the computing and with the massive data that is coming in, the normal computing technologies will not be able to support the, the, the processing power behind it. So quantum computing would be the way or the future that we should move forward to. Absolutely. Spe speaking about the future, um, I know that I'm going to ask an impossible question, but suppose that we are looking 10 years from now um, and... Um, we are having the same conversation that we are having again today. What will be the major change that a curriculum and universities are teaching compared to today? What are going to be the new subjects, the new things that will be part of uh, what students need to know? I think it would be Something that are in the area of augmented reality, mm -hmm. quantum computing, deep learning, and also cryptography, blockchain. Yeah, I think these are the the areas evolutions that I think that the computing syllabus should actually move forward subjects to train our future graduates. Very, very interesting. Um, I fully agree with you, by the way, because I think that those are going to be the, the absolute new technologies and we're, we're only scratching the surface at this moment with at most um, of those programs. Interesting thing is that I also start to realize um, how old I get become because when we were when I was in university, none of those subjects uh, existed let alone that we would have any kind of educational program around that. And that brings me um, maybe also as so maybe a good bridge towards the, the uh, one of my favorite questions that I always like to ask all of my guests who appear on the show. And that is that suppose that you were 18 again and you could give any advice to your 18 year old self on what they need to study and why, what, what would you choose and uh, what specific 
specialization would you go into if you were to do it all over again? If I were to do all over again and I was given this opportunity at this area, era of time, I would still choose computing degree. I will choose data science, data analytics degree program because, because of the amount of data that is required and also look at look at our surrounding. We are surrounded with technology. All right, we are surrounded with technologies and data are consistently, you know, collecting. So I would pick back the same degree and profession. Oh, if I was 18 years old and given me at this stage where the involvement and the involvement of the uh, technology. That's very interesting to hear. It also means that uh, you're quite lucky in, in the sense because I've, I've spoken to a lot of people previously on this podcast that started in either history or in uh, social sciences and they transitioned into the field of computing uh, because of their interest and the fact that it um, is basically shaping the world. But the fact that you say that you would do the same steps all over again means that you've absolutely made the right choice. No regrets. No regrets. Well, that's also a, a very positive ending for this episode today. Dr. Angela, I would like to thank you so much for sharing your time and wisdom with us today. Um, I always learn a lot from talking to industry experts and people who have been involved with the development of data science and these kind of uh, topics. And as a result, the, the time always flies by. We are already almost close to an hour. And it's been a very fascinating conversation. So thanks so much for being with us today. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yes, thank you so much, Jen, for inviting me over your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.